good to be with you guys. Welcome to our, our gathering. Uh, keep your Bibles right where they are, okay? So Daniel 6, 4 through 9 is going to be our text for this morning. Uh, we are currently studying and looking at the Lion's Den narrative, Daniel and the Lion's Den. And last Sunday, we uh, looked at Daniel's exaltation in verses 1 through 3. We looked at how he was raised up at the, as this high official and how Darius had sort of planned to put him over the entire kingdom, how Darius had appointed Daniel uh, as basically an overseer or as kind of like a lead accountant to make sure that, that he and his kingdom suffered no financial loss uh, because of corruption or bad management or what have you. Uh, Daniel's peers, the guys that he worked with, the high officials and the satraps, they uh, were threatened by Daniel's exaltation uh, because he was not the kind of person uh, who would go along with a scam. Uh, he wouldn't uh, turn his eyes away from corruption, uh, so to speak. He, he just wasn't a supporter of illegal activity. He was a straight shooter. He was faithful. And, uh, and so uh, there may have been some corruption going on, or at least plans to do that. But for whatever reason, uh, his peers, the people that he worked with, did not like who he was, what he stood for. And I think they were threatened by his kind of straight-shooting, God-honoring lifestyle. They were also, his peers were also envious of the kind of attention uh, he was getting from, from Darius, the king. Uh, they were jealous, envious of the attention. They were jealous of his rise to prominence. And what they did is they basically hated Daniel as they came together and began to conspire against him. And that is where we left off in the narrative. So, and we're going to pick right up right there where we left off. So I think it's befitting to pray uh, before we spend time in God's Word. Father, we just want to acknowledge your presence, acknowledge your goodness, and humble ourselves now uh, as we sit at your feet as you begin to instruct us. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified during this time and that we would be edified, meaning built up and conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. Challenge us, expose our sin, and, and give us grace uh, that we might repent and turn from the things that we're engaged in and, and live to a greater degree a life that glorifies you. And, uh, and so, Lord, we, we humbly submit ourselves to you now. We ask that you be glorified. We ask for your Holy Spirit to move in this place and in our hearts in power. Sanctify us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get right back into it. We'll begin at verse 4a. Are you there? If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, sounds like everyone's there. 4a. It says, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel. So we'll stop right there. Now, according to verses 1 and 2, there were 120 satraps and three high officials. That gives us an obvious total of 123 high leaders, if you will, or the highest leaders in the kingdom, 123 leaders. Now, Daniel was one of these high officials, so we have to subtract him, which leaves us with 122 leaders. Now, I want you to notice some of the things that we usually just kind of glance over, and, and that's just the way that the verse is phrased. Notice how it says, the high officials and satraps, the high officials and satraps. That's at least how it's translated in the ESV. It does not say some of the high officials and satraps. It does not say several of them. It doesn't say a couple of them, a few of them. It says the, the high officials and satraps. And, and what I believe Daniel has recorded for us here and what he wants us to realize is that all of them were involved in this thing. All 122 
of these leaders were involved in this scheme, if you will. Now, I just want you to put yourself in Daniel's shoes for a moment. Imagine having 122 adversaries, 122 people that are dead set on destroying you, ruining your reputation, um, and maybe even seeing you executed if they can get away with that. 122, if that's how we're to interpret this phrase, and I think it's accurate. Now, I don't know about you, but I can barely handle one adversary at a time. And, you know, if you're a Christian and, and you're, you know, preaching the gospel and, and trying to live out the truth and, and, and you know, and, and you, you exhort people at times and, and help to kind of instruct them and help them, uh, maybe other Christians with their walk, but primarily unbelievers, and maybe you try to share a little truth with them, give them the gospel. I mean, the fact of the matter is you're going to have adversaries. You're going to have people that are going to hate what you're saying and despise you for doing it. And, and, uh, and, and usually with me, and I do that pretty regularly with people, but it's kind of a one-on-one thing. And then next thing you know, I have an adversary, and this person and I are going back and forth. And even when I kind of end the dialogue because it's not fruitful or it's getting ugly and I'm worried that maybe I'll start saying things that I'll regret, they keep coming and coming and coming and coming and keep treating me like an adversary. And it really just bugs me. It, it drives me crazy to know that I've got somebody out there that, that doesn't like me, that's mad at me, that's angry with me, that, that despises me. And, uh, and so I was imagining myself as Daniel, and I'm thinking maybe once in a while on Facebook or something, I'll put a post up that has to do with truth or something, and then I'll, you know, I'll have somebody lay into me on there. And I can barely handle that, man. I'm like, I'm out, you know? In fact, some people that I know, they post stuff all the time there, but they just don't respond to any of the responses because that's a great way to avoid trouble and maybe getting tripped up and saying something you'll regret. They'll just post what they post, and everyone will come in with the toxic stuff, and they kind of let it go. I've never been wise enough to do that. I always try to respond. Next thing you know, I'm in a huge debate. They've got six paragraphs. I have a statement, and I've got adversaries, and people are mad, and they hate me, and it's a bloody mess. And, and, and I was just thinking, man, Daniel's got 122 of them here that are just out to get him. I get one or two here and there, and, and I'm totally wigging out. I'm totally freaking out. And uh, it, must have just, it must have been something for him. Now, how many of you guys have an adversary right now? You've got somebody in your life that you know that is just putting it on you. They don't like who you are. They don't like what you're about. Um, and, and they're toxic. And it, it's, it's always negative and, and hateful and maybe even profane. Maybe on their end, they just curse you. And you have somebody like that in your life. And that's very hard, very tough. And I'm just thinking, man, this guy had 122 of them. Wow. And the thing is, if you go down throughout the text and and continue to read, you'll see that he never even responds to them. That's someone who's sure of his God. Because he doesn't feel the need to defend himself to accusers, especially false accusers, because he's secure in Jesus. And that's one of the lessons I'm learning, is that, you know what? If If you want to put truth out there... People are going to come against it, but you don't necessarily have to defend yourself. And so often we get entangled in, def- in self-defense because A, we don't like the way it feels, or B, we're trying to protect something, or we're trying to draw acceptance from somebody, and we're not, it's not reciprocating, we're not getting it. Do we really need to be accepted by people out there? No, once you're accepted by God, which is huge, the greatest level of acceptance ever, why would we need to go? Now, I'm not saying go out there and tick people off intentionally. Just to make, I'm accepted by Jesus. You guys are stupid. You know, I don't go out there and start doing that stuff. But, you know, if you're accepted by God, if you're a son or daughter in Christ, you've got all the acceptance and favor that you need. And so I think that we can be less quick to defend ourselves. And, boy, that's a big struggle for me. So 122, possibly 122 adversaries are lining up and taking shots at this guy It's terrible. 4B, we're looking at 4B now, and I divided this into ABC, I believe. 4B says, with regard to the kingdom, with regard to the kingdom. So they're looking to find something to complain about, the 122, in regard to 
the kingdom. And I, and I think what is meant there by the word kingdom is his, his work history, his work ethic, how he served King Darius, his job, if you will. It could have to do his, with his reputation among people out throughout the kingdom, but I think primarily here it has to do with his job. And, and I think what they did was they began to study and watch and, and look at how he did his job, and they were looking for a discrepancy. They were looking for an inaccuracy. They were looking for some sandbagging, whatever you want to call it. They were looking for something in relation to his work to the kingdom. That's what they began to investigate. Today, this type of investigation would probably include uh, things like, uh, you know, maybe looking through your files. Maybe you're old school and you've got a file cabinet and you have files in there and you have tax docs and business dealings or whatever and you have, you know, old tax, whatever it is, would have to do with looking through your files, your file cabinets. It would have to do with searching your hard drive. Maybe you're, you know, you've joined the 21st century and you're totally electronic and, and you use a MacBook or something like that, and you've got a hard drive, and you've got stuff stored on there. They would be looking through your files, paper files. They'd be looking through your hard drive. They'd be looking through your emails. They'd be looking through your deleted emails. They'd be <laughs> you think that's funny. Yeah, I thought I was getting political. Wasn't. They'd be looking through your emails. They'd be looking through your deleted emails. They'd be looking at investigating your posts on Facebook or on any social media, they'd be looking at your conversations on social network sites. They'd be listening to your voicemails. They, they would be looking through pretty much everything. They literally would have gone through Daniel's work-related records and maybe some personal stuff too with a fine-tooth comb. I, I thought, Wow. How were they able to do that without him knowing? Well, I think he knew, but who knows what kind of excuse they made up. But they basically started to really investigate his life and his business dealings. They wanted to find something. And I mentioned earlier that they may have been involved in corruption, and it's so weird how the human nature works, and that's that when we're involved in something sinful, some level of corruption, rather than owning what we're doing, we look to find it in other lives and in other people to expose them when really what we're doing is just transferring guilt. And that's, I think, what's playing out here. So they're looking through his business dealings, his work habits, checking his time card. Up, oh, minute late, got him. They're looking for stuff with regard to the kingdom. Now look at 4C. I think somebody just fell through the ceiling. 4C says, but they could not find ground for complaint or any fault. Their investigation of his work-related stuff turned up zilch, zero, nothing. Daniel's record, if you will, was spotless. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how he was a model employee, how he was faithful and without blame or blameless. And so they just couldn't find anything in relation to his dealings with the kingdom and the king that he served. Now just put yourself in his shoes again here. And, and, and what if someone or 122 government officials investigated you? What if they looked at your bank records what if they looked at your credit card statements? What if they looked at your internet search histories? What if they looked at your emails and deleted emails? What if they looked at your hard drives? What if they looked at your social media pages? Would they find grounds for a complaint? Just think about that for a moment. I don't like getting into Daniel's shoes. I think most of us, if not all of us, would be a tad bit embarrassed by some of the stuff that we're doing or have done. I think all of us, I think that people could find stuff with all of us. I know they certainly could with me, maybe on social media or somewhere. What if they had the ability to listen to all of your conversations? What if they had the ability to analyze all of your thoughts? 
Oh, man, I'll tell you what. I've gotten better and better at capturing my words before they say them, but I'm not very good at capturing my thoughts. Might not be manifested verbally, but it's still here. Kill him doesn't come out as kill him, but I'm thinking it, and I've just committed murder in my mind. Usually it's on the road when I'm driving and somebody's doing 22, and I'm like, oh, or whatever. Or if I watch too much news and get too much of an injection of politics, I start getting really, really mad. I can't believe how foolish people are today. can't believe how foolish I am at times. What if somebody analyzed you in this way? Would they find ground for complaint? And, and, and I would just say that I'm, I'm just totally so glad that people don't investigate us in this way. I guess unless you get audited from the IRS, but I don't know if they look at everything. Maybe you've been audited and you're saying, I know what it's like. Hopefully you haven't. I heard it's not pleasant. But for the most part, we don't have people analyzing us in this sort of way and looking through everything. In fact, probably for most of us, our spouses have no idea as to what we're doing across the board. But I'm not promoting that idea. I think you should have a transparent marriage and all that. There shouldn't be secrets. But I'm kind of glad that we don't have people sifting through our records in this way. I think that we'd be embarrassed. I know I would at times. But we mustn't forget that God is all-knowing, that God is all-seeing, that God is all-present, which means that there is nothing hidden from His sight. And, and the thing that drives me crazy about me and about human nature is that we're more concerned about what people can find or see than we are with what God sees. And we become really, really good at putting on the masks and hiding what's actually going on with people And we can maintain some level of blamelessness with them by hiding stuff from them. And we play that little game. And all the while, we don't have really any concern about being blameless with our God. And that's pretty sad. Shouldn't He be the first person in whom we seek to be blameless before? I mean, if we truly as Christians say that God is number one in our lives, then shouldn't we be... Firstly, transparent with Him, open and honest. You know that's what He invites us into in relationship. He doesn't invite us into it and and say, Jesus died for you, He's my Son. I put Him on the cross for you, He died for you so that you can come and lie to me for your whole life. No, that it's so that you could... Everything is before Him already. He already knows about all of it. He put Jesus on the cross to forgive all of it. And here we are playing these games down here and pretending like He can't see what's going on, that we really don't care and and i just i just want to say this to me and to everyone in here god is not interested in playing games with his children okay you know we pick up monopoly we sit down with our kids no i'm in jail again i always end up in jail i don't know why human nature and and and, you know we play games and all that i'm not saying we don't have an abba father who's loving who doesn't you know laugh and all those things he does but he's not interested in playing these hide and seek games he invites us to himself and he knows exactly he invites us while knowing what we're hiding while knowing what we're involved in or what we've done i don't know about you but if you knew a lot of things about certain people you probably would not invite them into your home would you and he says come come freely he's just not interested in playing these games with us and he is endlessly gracious with us and perpetually merciful and he just says just 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 be as you are and let me work in your life and conform you to the image of my son and you can start putting down the masks and get real with me because i'm the last person in the universe you need to hide from don't do what adam and eve did go out hiding somewhere and we do it and you know what? When we begin to realize that, we, we, we start to learn and, and realize that we don't have to hide in front of people either, that we can just be transparent in front of people, that we don't have to hide things. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? We don't have to play these games. Anyone play the game? I'll tell you right now, I'll be the first to put my hand up. I've played this game over and over. I still do, on and off. Don't have to do it. We don't have to do it. God sees all and knows all. We should Seek to be righteous and holy before Him and blameless firstly. And then that 
can begin to trickle into all of our relationships on this side of heaven. We can be open and honest. Daniel had these guys on him and they were looking and looking and looking, but they couldn't find anything because he was blameless. Let's look at five. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they switched directions here. We're not going to find anything on his work record. Well, we've looked at his taxes. He does what he, he renders to Caesar, you know, and we're just, there's just nothing there. We got nothing. So let, let's switch it up. The high officials and satraps called their quest to find discrepancies in his work record off. They just said, we can't find anything. And what they do, they decided to target his religion, if you want to call it that. Let's go after his faith. Let's go after his religion. Let's go after his piety. They knew. And the reason why they did this was because they knew who Daniel was. You can't go after some aspect of someone if you don't know who they are. You can guess. I do that at times and I find out I'm wrong because that's not what they're actually into. You know, we shouldn't go around presuming. They weren't presuming that Daniel was pious and religious and a God-honoring person. They knew who he was. This is a testimony to his, you know, faith and living it out before people. They knew who he was. They knew he was devout. They knew he was pious. And they also understood, and this is huge, they knew, they understood that nothing would deter Daniel from seeking his God. Not even Medo-Persian law. They knew this about him. That guy's so pious, there's no way he's going to denounce his God or turn away from his religion. They knew this. So they drafted an ordinance they knew he would end up breaking. They put something together that would put him in a situation where he had to break either his law or Medo-Persian law, and they knew that he would err on the side of breaking Medo-Persian law and not the Mosaic law, the law of God. But before presenting it to Darius for approval and a signature, they went throughout the entire kingdom and gathered support. This is what government officials do. If somebody drafts a law, they've got to go out and talk to congressmen and senators, and they've got to get support for their bill. That way, when they present it before the panel or whoever, they can say, uh, everyone in the cabinet, everyone in, in, in Congress, or we have a, a enough votes there. Uh, look at all these people that support this ordinance. And that's exactly what they're doing at this point in the narrative. Now, let's look at 6 through 7a. Then these high officials and satraps I believe it was 122, came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever! Exclamation point. All the high officials of the kingdom, this is them speaking, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. So the would-be lawmakers came before King Darius and began by employing the standard-issue ancient greeting of live forever. We've seen this in Daniel already. You'll see it in other writings, in other scripture. This is how ancient, the kings of antiquity, were greeted by their servants' officials. They would say, O king, live forever. This was a standard-issue greeting. So they begin by saying live forever, which denotes a perpetual kingdom, a prosperous life, and, and some kind of everlasting impact on culture, I guess. I don't know. Live forever. And after the greeting, they sought to show the king that they had unilateral support for the ordinance they had put together. They declared, and this is my paraphrase, all of the primary or major leaders of your kingdom, the high officials, the prefects, prefects are usually military leaders, so that's his generals and all that, the satraps, those are the province leaders, the counselors and the governors, district leaders, agree 
that you should establish and enforce the ordinance we're about to present to you. So they gathered all that support, and the first thing they do is greet the king and tell him, we're going to show you an ordinance, and basically every leader in your kingdom is on board with this, has given it the yes vote. Now tell me that's not going to carry some weight once they present it to the king. If The, the king's going to be thinking, well, everyone thinks it's a good idea, so that must mean it's cool. Now I'd say these guys were pretty, this 122, they were pretty discerning they knew they understood that the king would be more likely to sign into law their ordinance if they came with the support of his entire administration right this guy's got some wisdom i mean they they didn't they might be crafty and demonic if you will but you know they they weren't stupid they didn't just you know walk into their positions Uh, they had brains and they knew how to use them and they went out and got the support they drafted something that would be appealing they got the support And they presented it to the king, and of course they gave him the standard greeting, which made him feel good about his day. They knew what they were up to. They wanted this thing to go through. They did, because there was a lot riding on it for them. Now let's take a look at their ordinance in 7b. It may have been more complex uh, than we see here, but Daniel is abbreviating and showing us the gist of it, if you will. 7b, here it is. Whoever, that whoever makes petition to any God or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, I don't know, that sounds like a a children's book. It does, right? It's like, you know, if, if they don't just petition you and they petition others we're just going to throw them into the and i think sadly we've kind of reduced this story down to a children's narrative and it's great to teach children what happened here and about daniel and the lions but this is a real historical ordinance that within it had life and death it's just simplified here is all it is now petition in Aramaic, because this is an Aramaic section, you remember I told you long ago that, that the book of Daniel was written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. This is an, uh, an Aramaic, it's, I almost called it a Hebraic. We should just blend them. But this is an Aramaic phrase, because this was written in Aramaic. And petition can be translated as prayer. Now, I've just paused to ask, does, do any of your translations say prayer in them rather than petition? Yeah, okay, so we've got one out there. So it's interchangeable. Uh, Petition and prayer in in Aramaic are synonymous. They're the same thing. My ESV, which I believe is superior to every translation in the known universe. I'm kidding. It's a good one. Uh, it, It says petition, but it can be translated as prayer. So the verse could be rendered something like this. Whoever prays, this is the ordinance, whoever prays to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. That's a great way to translate this verse. Now, why did the high officials and satraps target prayer? Why not Bible study? Why not tithing? Why not, you know, they could have targeted any one of the, the things that Christians engage in. You know, that, that Old Testament Jews who were believing in the coming Messiah, they were still Christian in a sense. You know, they could have targeted any aspect of his religion. Why did they choose prayer? Why not some other religious practice? Well, it's pretty obvious. When they investigated Daniel's record, when they looked into his life beforehand, they took notice of his ritual. So when they looked at his record, they took notice of his ritual. Every day he entered the prayer room of his home, and it was usually an upper room in these houses. That's how they were built. They were built with upper rooms, and pious Jews would use those rooms for prayer. Every day he would enter that prayer room at his home. So maybe he took a work from, uh, break from work or something like that, his lunch hour. I don't know how it broke down, but he would go to this prayer room. He would open the windows that faced Jerusalem. This was common. You've heard of Muslims praying toward 
Mecca, Jews typically will pray toward Jerusalem. Um, there's no connection there, but it's just the way that they do it. So he would open these windows that faced the direction where Jerusalem was, and of course it was somewhere around 500 miles away on the other side. And what he would do is he'd go, he'd open the windows, he'd fall to his knees, and he would pray. And he did this three times a day. Look at verse 10. That's where you see it. So this was his ritual. These guys saw him do this over and over and over again. I mean, think about it. How long did it take them to investigate his work record? 24 hours? I think they probably watched him for a couple of months looking for any signs and things that they could complain about. And so they saw this guy go to his house and pray every day, three times a day. This is why they targeted prayer. This is why the ordinance has to do with prayer. It has a direct connection to their adversary or target, who is Daniel. Now, I just want to talk about some of the not-so-clear, maybe hidden implications of this ordinance for a moment. And I think this stuff is interesting. First, you've got to know the context that this is playing out in. Medo-Persia was similar to Babylonia because Babylonia was the ruling kingdom just years before this, if that, and and Medo-Persia came in and conquered Babylonia and took over their land and added it to their already massive kingdom. And so uh, Medo-Persia was like Babylonia in that it was a pluralistic society. Pluralism or a pluralistic society has to do with having many gods and religions. Okay, so a pluralistic society is a, a, a very diverse society where many gods and religions are welcome. Uh, we would almost say that you have the freedom of religion in a pluralistic culture. Obviously, right? If you didn't have the freedom of it, then it'd be one religion or no religion. Think of USSR, no religion. China, no religion. The U.S. is a pluralistic society. You can be a Christian. Here you can be a Muslim. You can be a Mormon. You can be a Buddhist. You can be Hindu. You can be any one of the 10,000 isms that you choose here. You can be whatever you want to be in the U.S., and the First Amendment pretty much protects your right to do so. Do I agree with, with that? Yes and no. I have difficulty with it because I think that you get all kinds of crazy stuff happening, but at the same time, I don't, I'm not one who believes that America has always been a Christian nation. Uh, I believe that there have been Christians in leadership and that some of the drafters of our Constitution and all that, the Bill of Rights, were Christian, but I don't think that it's fair to say that America has always been a Christian nation. And the reason why I say that is because God is not about nations or Christian nations. He's about a kingdom. And so, you know, you have the kingdom of God and then you have nations, and they're two different things. In fact, in Daniel, we learn that all of the kingdoms of this world will be laid to rest as the kingdom of Jesus Christ comes into play. And so I don't believe God has ordained Christian nations. I believe he's ordained a kingdom. And I think there's a difference between them. But it doesn't mean that you don't have Christians here and Christian influence. And I believe all of our laws and all that are based off of Scripture. Not all of our laws are, but our laws originally were at one point, that kind of the Mosaic law and the Ten Commandments were a starting point. But anyways, you've got pluralism here. You have pluralism in Babylonia. You have pluralism in Medo-Persia. Now just think about the implications of this ordinance. The ordinance these men presented to the king would make it illegal for the people of a pluralistic society to pray to their gods for 30 days unless their god was Darius. How do you think that would go down in America? What would happen if our president signed an EO, an executive order, that said that for the next 30 days you can only pray to me. And if you are found to be praying to any other God or person other than me, you will suffer capital punishment. You will be executed. How would that go down? Now, I think the atheists would throw a huge party. They wouldn't have anyone to pick on for the next 30 days. 
I think they'd throw a party, but I can't even imagine what the implications of this would be for our nation. I can't even imagine what they must have been like for Medo-Persia as a pluralistic society. And you've got, to, you've got to know that these ancient cultures, these ancient societies, these ancient kingdoms had pantheons filled with gods. The Medo-Persians were really no different than the Babylonians, and they had dozens of gods that they worshipped. And all of a sudden, this ordinance states that we can't pray to the gods that we're devoted to, and we can only pray to Darius? I, I think this would, this would not go over well. It would have been devastating. Hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even millions, would be prohibited from praying to their gods for 30 days. This was, in many ways, equivalent to a kingdom-wide ban on religion. It really was. I just don't think it would go down well. So that's one of the implications. That's one of them. I think typically what we think about are the implications for someone like Daniel because he's the main character of our storyline, right? This had, you know, not being able to pray to his God, would, it, that ordinance would have had a profound impact on him in a sense. But we don't often consider how it impacted the entire kingdom. So that's one implication. Second, the ordinance was clearly designed to appeal to Darius's pride. Big time. Big time. If he signed it into law, he would become the sole object of his people's religious devotion for 30 days. Everyone is going to essentially petition me and call upon my name and, and worship me, in a sense, for 30 days. Now, ancient kings like Darius, Nebuchadnezzar, and the pharaohs of Egypt were often thought of as earthly gods, and people were commanded to worship them along with their other lower G gods or idols. But this ordinance would take all of that line of thinking and practice to a whole other level because it banned the idols and put the focus on one person. If Darius signed the ordinance into law, he would experience what his predecessors never experienced, unmitigated devotion. You, you could not be devoted to other gods for 30 days and petition them only to this, this uh, demigod, if you will, really a false god, named Darius. He would become the only god and object of worship for 30 days. That's what the ordinance declared. Now all of us say to ourselves, there's no way I'd be involved in anything like that, but just think about if you could have the attention and focus and devotion of probably millions of people. It'd be unreal. I don't think it'd be like Bruce Almighty where he's trying to answer all the emails. Remember that? And he can't handle all the prayers and petitions and he's exploding. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It was really corny, but he would be the God in Medo-Persia for 30 days. Even though he was already thought of as a type of God, he would be the only. His kingdom would be monotheistic for 30 days, not pluralistic. This, this is huge. So that's another implication. Third, the prescribed means of capital punishment or death for offenders was truly horrific. Again, I think we downplay that because we, we use this piece of literature and history, this document, this letter, we use it for kids' ministry and all that, and we think of, you know, happy little lions and cute little lions. We don't think of that up there. We would have been like, oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? We've downplayed it. Dare to be a Daniel is what we teach our kids. No, let's be like Jesus. But I just want you to know and understand that this means of capital punishment was absolutely horrific. Okay, so, so lion's den, being thrown into a lion's den is synonymous with being eaten alive. That's what happens to you when you're thrown into a lion's den. And it's not like you see on safari shows where they run up and grab a zebra around the neck and strangle it first, which is rather humane. It, it would have been vastly different from that. They're not out hunting. They're in a pen. They're in a den. Just imagine, and I know it's a little graphic, but imagine having, being thrown in and having your limbs and your flesh torn from your body as you lie helplessly within the un, 
unbreakable grasp of, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen, six, three, I don't know how many lions, three to 500 pound African lions. These were African lions. They would import them. They, had them. they imported them throughout the Middle East. And imagine being thrown in and being overcome and then eaten alive. I just can't even think of what that was like. And we've all seen the safari shows and and how gruesome that is when a pack of lions starts piecing out an antelope or a zebra or that, and the animal's going, ah, you know, and it's like, man, I just, I, I want to be somewhere in the back with a sniper rifle and shoot the animal in the head so it's over. Actually, I usually feel like shooting the lions. They've got to eat. Making this worse, the handlers, the keepers, deliberately kept the lions hungry. They would only feed them minimal amounts of food to keep them at the point where they would lose a little body fat, but not so much to where they'd be lethargic and they couldn't perform, but they would keep them right on the precipice of starvation. Why do you think they did that? Because what would happen is when you have hungry, and a lion that's hungry is a lion that's angry and mad, ill-tempered. And so when you take an animal or a person and throw it into a den of lions that are on the precipice of starvation, that are totally hungry. They don't casually walk up to the prey, say, how you doing? I'm going to eat you. What you have is you have an explosion of teeth, hair, fur, noises and growls and body parts literally flying. It would be like, you've seen maybe the videos where somebody drops a piece of meat into, a, into the Amazon and you have prawn and some, you know, and then all of a sudden there's nothing. That's what this would be like. So they would deliberately keep these animals hungry because it put on a way better show. It's just insanity. So the high officials, the satraps, maybe 122, they presented their ordinance and all of this support and the ordinance has to do with Darius being exalted as the only god in Medo-Persia and the punishment being probably one of the most horrific punishments of all time. They present it. Now it was time for them to seek to get his signature. Okay? Verse 8. Now, O king. They like that, huh? O king, so honoring, so reverent. Now, O king, establish the injunction. And sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. In ancient cultures like Medo-Persia, the king had ultimate authority. And when he signed a document, that document and what it represented, whatever was in the document, became a representation of his authority and completely irrevocable. I mean, you really had to think through what you were about to sign into law back in these days in these kingdoms because it basically, unless there was a provision or it had a timeline where it would end, it would be an everlasting document or at least as long as your kingdom or your reign lasted. No one in the kingdom, not even the king himself, could cancel, could override or bypass a document such as this. Once it's got his signature or his signet stamp on it and he approves it, that's it. If it was a two-year restriction on trade with a particular, uh, particular kingdom, another people group, culture out there, civilization, uh, it would be a two-year you know, halt or restriction on trade. It wouldn't be one and a half years or anything more or less. It would be that long. And there was no way to change it. Uh, judges could not come in and override. The Senate could not come in and override. You could not do what you see take place in our government today. That was it. Once the king stamped it, it was over. Shut up. Don't talk about it. It's done. Abide. That was the rule. And not even the king himself could change it. Now the king could maybe come to his senses because the ordinance that he actually stamped, he missed something in it. There was a clause that he didn't see or something. He could change his mind. 
but he couldn't change the dock. He could not change the ordinance. So, and we'll see that play out a little later. And I have to say again, the high officials and satraps were very, very discerning, very crafty. They knew that Darius favored Daniel above all others and that he would try to bypass the ordinance once he figured out what was going on. They knew it. They knew that he'd sign, they sensed that he would sign it because of the perks for him, but they also sensed that he would try to cancel it out somehow once he realized the broader implication being Daniel. They knew that he would try to save Daniel from the lion's den because he loved Daniel. He thought Daniel was, Daniel was his primary leader. He was going to make him the prince of his kingdom. They knew this, they understood this, and that is why they reiterated the signature law, which it says cannot be revoked. Notice how they present it, and we want you to sign it, but we want to remind you of something. Once you sign it, that's it. They knew that once he realized, oh man, are you kidding me? There'd be no going back. Now look at our last verse, verse 9. <laughs> It's not funny, but it's, I just have to say, my wife and I had a conversation about this, but it just says, therefore, King Darius signed the document, an injunction. You know, after hearing a message like this or reading the text over and over, you tend to say to yourself, what a nimbus. Why on earth did he sign something like this? Why would he do that? Well, we know the end of the story. He didn't know any of that at the time. The other day, Rachel and I were talking about this. My wife, Rachel, we were talking about this, and she said, how could Darius be so foolish as to sign an ordinance like this? And I was like, I know, honey, it seems really stupid. It's actually a great question, which I think is pretty easy to answer. A couple of reasons. At this point, he had no idea what the high officials and satraps were up to. Daniel was not on his radar, okay? Makes a little sense why he could sign it. Second, he trusted these leaders. These were his appointed satraps and high officials he knew who they were. Some of them were royalty, if not all of them. They were family members. He trusted them. Maybe as you would trust some of your own family members. And some of you are saying, I can't trust some of my cousins. You know? He trusted these people. And if they came to him with something, his default mode wasn't, they're trying to get over on me. Something's going on. He appointed these people. So he trusted them. He did not think that they would try to deceive him, right? So he didn't have Daniel on his radar. He had no concept of that. He didn't know there was a deception playing out. He trusted his leaders. And thirdly, I already pointed this one out, I believe he was blinded by his pride and the attention he would receive for 30 days. The ordinance catered to his pride. You'll be the man for a month. Ooh, that sounds pretty good. And you know what? There's a parallel here for us. The devil tr crafts deceptions and temptations and schemes on us in the same manner, doesn't he? So often we can't detect right up front what he's up to. And he puts so much candy and chocolate around it and everything, we're just like... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These guys were crafty. Our enemy is crafty. Our adversary, chief adversary. When you consider these things, at least these three, and I'm sure there's more, it's pretty easy to see why he signed it. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at Daniel's response. And I call it Daniel's devotion. So I'm going to take a quick drink and I'm going to make some parallels between Daniel and this narrative and to Jesus. Because as I say frequently in my messages that, 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 you know, we say at Christmas, Jesus is the reason for the season, no doubt. But Jesus is, is what Scripture ultimately points to. And so everything points to Him. And He even said that in one of the Gospels. And so we need to see how this points to Jesus. There are some great parallels here. First, the high officials and satraps examined Daniel's record, hoping to find discrepancies so they could indict him, but they came up empty because Daniel was faithful and blameless. Right? We see that playing out in the text. The religious leaders examined Jesus' record, 
hoping to find discrepancies. They studied him carefully for three and a half years. Why? So that they could find a discrepancy, something that's out of sorts, so that they could indict him, but they essentially came up empty because he is faithful and blameless. Now, that's not to say that they didn't blame him for rejecting some of their man-made ordinances, the hand-washing things and stuff like that. He totally rejected that. But ultimately, they studied him as in the same manner that these adversaries studied Daniel. And ultimately, when these chief priests, when the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of Jesus' adversaries during his ministry studied him, they came up empty-handed. So there's a fantastic parallel. And uh, Daniel was faithful and blameless, and I emphasized this at last week's, the end of last week's sermon, and Jesus is, was and is faithful and blameless. Great parallel there. And I thought, man, well, I'll move on to the next one. The high officials and satraps realized that in order to catch Daniel or to nail Daniel, they had to... Um, get him to violate their law in connection with his worship. So they realized we can't go after his record because he's got a spotless record. We're going to have to go after something connected to his law. We've got to get him to violate you know, our laws as he upholds the law of God, right? The Religious leaders realized that in order to nail Jesus, they would have to get him to violate their law in the same way, the law of Moses, okay? They tried to get Jesus to violate the law of Moses. If they could do that, that'd be it. This is why the high priest Caiaphas asked Jesus, are you the son of God? If Jesus answered yes, he would have committed blasphemy and violated the Mosaic law, which says that God is one. Jesus, of course, said yes, and that led to his execution. What the religious leaders didn't understand is that Jesus did not violate the Mosaic law. He is the fulfillment of the Mosaic law, and he is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He himself is God. So he didn't violate the law of Moses. He fulfilled it in a sense, but he is God. But they pulled the same tactic on Jesus. Same thing. The high officials and satraps persuaded King Darius to sign into law an irrevocable 30-day ordinance which condemned to death anyone who petitioned a god or person other than the king. Right? We just looked at that. That's what they came up with. That was their strategy. Now listen to this parallel. The Most High God, and that's whom our God, the Father, is referred to over and over in the book of Daniel. So whenever you hear me say Most High God, I'm talking about our God. I'm talking about the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity. The Most High God has signed into law an irrevocable ordinance, and it's not for 30 days that condemns to death and consigns to hell everyone who petitions a God or person other than him. Did you hear what I just said? Now, we know that it was Daniel's adversaries that crafted this ordinance, and we know that it was Darius that signed it into, into law for 30 days. You worship anyone other than me, you're toast. In a similar way, the Most High God has done the same thing. What do the first and second commandments say? What do they say? You shall have no other gods before me. You feeling me? You catch me here? What does the second commandment say? You shall not make for yourself, my paraphrase, any idols. In other words, I am God alone and you are to petition and worship me alone. That's it. No idols, no other gods. Now the scriptures show that all people are sinners who worship idols and have broken God's irrevocable 
ordinances. Right? Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, There is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. I like what John Calvin wrote 500 years ago or so. The human heart is an idol factory. Where do all idols come from? People. We create them. Usually in our own image. You ever notice that about the Egyptian gods, the Babylonian gods? They were all representations of the people. Oh, we're having some fertility issues. Let's create a fertility god. <laughs> That's the thinking. The human heart is a factory that makes idols. And here's the bottom line. All of us, all of us have gone astray and chased after idols, especially the idol of self. We are all guilty before the Most High God. We have all broken His ordinance. Bare minimum, the first two commandments. And I think that we've probably broken all ten and all the other laws that we see in Scripture. Maybe not all of them, but many of them. We're all guilty. We've all done this. And we're all under condemnation and the penalty of death. But the good news is, Jesus came to revoke, to cancel out, not the ordinance itself, because the law of God still stands today, but to revoke the penalty that we deserve for our idolatry, for our sin, for our lawlessness. He came to save us from God's justice and wrath, and those who believe in His righteous life, His sacrificial death, His account closing burial and his death conquering resurrection will be saved and not just saved but conformed to his image because that's the ultimate goal of salvation not golden streets in heaven but to be like Jesus as much as possible Jesus alone can rescue us from this great peril the penalty of death and hell for our idolatry Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I like what our new CIA director, Mike Pompeo, said a while ago. And you usually don't hear these things from elected or appointed officials, politicians. He said this. He said, Jesus Christ is the only solution for our world. Man, that's bold. Because let me tell you, if you're at his level and you say something like that, you've just unleashed all of hell on you. You have a lot more than 122 adversaries. But his statement is absolutely true. In the same way that an ordinance was crafted to condemn idolatry, our God has crafted an ordinance that does the same thing. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're all guilty. We've all given ourselves over to idols. We might not have big statues of, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's statue in our yard, and we bow to that. Our idols today don't look like those idols. But we have idols. And I think the primary idol is self. We worship ourselves. We put ourselves before others. And, and we put ourselves before God. You know how many... Maybe I shouldn't presume, but I would imagine there's a lot of Christians that are not in churches today, and they're dancing around a Super Bowl trophy. <laughs> Idolatry is everywhere, and we're all guilty, but I praise God for Jesus, who is the only one. He's the only one that can deliver us. Do you believe that this morning, friends? I hope you do. I hope you do. Because without Jesus, there is no rescue from divine punishment. And believe me when I say this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God who has the power to not only destroy the physical body, but to destroy the soul in hell. 
That's the God that we have. He is loving, gracious, and merciful, but He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. And if we're in Christ, we have nothing to worry about when it comes to these things that we're talking about. Nothing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Confess Him as such with your mouth. What does it say in Scripture? Ye shall be saved. Amen? Amen.